Well, I hope again, as I had mentioned earlier, that you would turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, and I just want to let you know that we've arrived. Okay, we, we set out five months ago, six months ago, to do a study on the Ten Commandments, and we're now there. The longest introduction in history. Six months before getting to one chapter of the book of Exodus. But it was so important that we looked at those 19 previous chapters to truly understand and appreciate the impact of this next portion, the Ten Commandments themselves. And the title of my message this morning is The First Four. For the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the Ten Words are divided. Four have to do with man's relationship with God And six have to do with man's relationship with their fellow man. And so today we will be looking at the first four together, which is uh, ambitious in and of itself. There's a lot to cover here. But in saying that, it's vitally important that you understand. And if you don't get anything else out of today, write this down. Note it. Put it in your handheld device. Whatever you do to remember something. This is so important. Throughout the Bible, a principle is given to us, and we see it clearly articulated and illustrated for us here, and as we are going through 1 John on Wednesdays, we see John referring to this principle that was a known to the people of God, that before our relationship with others can be right, our relationship with God must be right first. Before we can have right relationships with one another, we must first have a right relationship with God. Today, we see so many relationship difficulties because the world has told us, no, it's not important to have a relationship with God that is a right relationship with God before you can have a right relationship with people. You must first have a right relationship with yourself and then you can have a right relationship with people. Today, more than ever, we see a self-centered society. So self-absorbed, everything is about self. The only thing that would make it uh, more obvious that everything is about self was to have a magazine named Self. Oh, we do. It's all about us. So why are we so surprised when we've made an entire society all about us that people are having difficulties in relationships with others? Do you ever think about that? Why is it so shocking? You know, some would say, I have great relationships. I have relationships with me, myself, and I. That's perfect. It's exactly the way I want it. Others just complicate that dynamic. So I don't let them in or I don't have good relationships with other people. But the Bible tells us very clearly that if we are going to have right relationships with people, we must first have right relationship with God. It translates to our marriage translates to our parenting, translates to our friends and associates, our co-workers, etc., whoever it may be, we must first have a right relationship with God to have a right relationship with people. Now, undoubtedly, if someone were to ask you, what is the most famous verse in the entire Bible? Probably all of us would say John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, whomsoever shall believe in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But a close second would have to be the Ten Commandments. I I think that most would say, yeah, that's that's a really well-known portion of the Bible is the Ten Commandments. I don't think anybody would argue with me on that. 
But as I have rattled off John 3.16, I wonder how many who would say that the Ten Commandments is such a popular portion of Scripture would actually be able to recite all Ten Commandments. It's interesting how many know of their importance but don't actually know what they are. It's interesting, when we go out street evangelizing and going out sharing Christ with others, or even when we uh, have our booth at Heritage Fest here in West Dundee, we often use for an icebreaker this question. Listen, I will give anybody this $10 bill. Now you have to imagine that I have a $10 bill. Don didn't have one to give me before I got up here, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. But I'll give you this $10 bill if you can give me all Ten Commandments in biblical order. And usually they cannot do it. In fact, I've never had to give away my $10 bill. So when uh, Don uh, Spence came to the church and wanted to get involved in street witnessing and worked our booth at Heritage Fest, we told him about this icebreaker and we told him not to worry about giving his $10 bill away because it never happens. So he left the booth all ex, you know, excited about sharing his new faith and he went out there and within five minutes he comes back and his face is white. He's got a big frown. I'm like, what happened? And he goes, the first person I asked knew all 10 and I lost my $10 bill. <laughs> That's why I didn't have one this morning to show you. It's interesting though because when we follow up the question, if those same people who know the importance of the Ten Commandments, know of the Ten Commandments, but cannot name the Ten Commandments, if they could give me the name of ten beer companies, could they do it? I've never had a person not be able to do it. But the one thing that everyone agrees on, regardless if they know them or not, as soon as we introduce them to the Ten Commandments and what they say, they all agree that none of them have ever kept them all. It's an impossibility. Only one is perfect could do so, and only one did so, and that was the person Jesus Christ himself. Today, you and I, when we hear about the Ten Commandments in our society, we're hearing more and more about them trying to remove the Ten Commandments from every public place within our nation. Do you ever wonder why those Ten Commandments are so offensive to so many people that we have to make such strides to remove them from every public place within America? I mean, not only do Jewish people reverence and uh, respect and honor the Ten Commandments, but so do Christians. So what is so offensive about the Ten Commandments? Well, in actuality, you would be surprised that there is no offense when it comes to the last six. The offense actually occurs from the first four. Because there seems to be a moral consensus concerning the last six of the Ten Commandments. No one says that the last six of the Ten Commandments are offensive. That, you know, thou shalt not steal. You know, thou shalt have, uh, thou shalt not covet. You know, thou shalt honor thy mother and father. Those are respected. Those are desired as part of our moral code. So what is so offensive that requires us to remove them from every public place in the United States of America? 
Well, one writer at least was honest with the public when he wrote at a time where he was emboldened because uh, the courts had just ruled that the Ten Commandments in his area had to be removed. And now he is writing in the wake of that removal and he really alludes to the fact spot on of why they are so offensive that they must be removed today from public place. It's the first four. Let me read to you what he wrote in his column. Yep, the problem is with the first four commandments. Claiming ownership and demanding gratitude shown to an obscure deity of the Near East. How about the below version? Let me give you this alternative. Do you or any Christians want it publicly supported and displayed? And here's what he suggests. I am the wonder drink, Coca-Cola, that refreshes you and brought you great joy. I now bring you these rules. You shall have no other soft drink in your refrigerator before me. You shall not make for yourself uh, an imitation in the form of anything drinkable. Only the real Coca-Cola should you drink. You shall not misuse the name of Coca-Cola, for it is copyrighted and we will sue you. Remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath for simply drinking Coca-Cola. Would you want to be subjected to such things here in America, the writer went on to say. But not only do they want to remove them for the offense of the knowledge of God that they portray, but media mogul Ted Turner in the late 1980s, and some of you may remember this, when the Ten Commandments were being removed at an epic pace from our public society, Ted Turner actually said, listen, not only should we remove the Ten Commandments, but we should offer an alternative. We should give people an alternative for the moral code of our society. And he called this alternative the Ten Voluntary Initiatives. Let me read these Ten Voluntary Initiatives for you. I promise to have love and respect for the planet Earth and the living things thereon, especially my fellow species, humankind, number one. Number two, I promise to treat all persons everywhere with dignity, respect, and friendliness. Number three, he suggested, I promise to have no more than two children or no more than my nation suggests. Number four, I promise to use my uh, best efforts to save what is left of our natural world in its untouched state and to restore damaged or destroy areas, destroyed areas where possible and practical. Number five, I pledge to use little non-renewable resources as possible. Number six, I pledge to use as little toxin, uh, chemicals, pesticides, and other poisons as little as possible and to work for their reduction by others. Number seven, I promise to contribute to these less fortunate than myself to help them become self-sufficient and enjoy the benefits of a decent life, including clean air and water and adequate food and health care, housing, education, and individual rights. I reject the use of force, number eight, in particularly military force, and back the United Nations arbitration of international disputes. Number nine, I support the total elimination of all nuclear, chemical, biological weapons of mass destruction, 
And number 10, I support the United Nation and its efforts to collectively improve the conditions of the planet. And so this was Ted Turner's alternatives. Now, let me ask you a question. You may laugh at that. You may be appalled by that. But let me ask you of how many of those are actually a reality today that are more important than significant issues within our culture and society today. What he said, he was dead serious when he said this. He really believed that this was going to be the alternative to the Ten Commandments of God. Now you notice that nowhere within any of them are there any references to God whatsoever. And everything is surrounded about our planet, mankind, and etc. So it's not only the removal of the Ten Commandments because of the objection to the first four would have to do with God and our subjection to Him, but it's also now let's replace them with something that eliminates Him altogether. So this morning we come together as a church to one of the most dynamic portions of the Bible, the giving of the Ten Commandments. Now I know when we think of that imagery, we think of Moses, who looks just like Charlton Heston, I was told, coming down from Mount Sinai carrying these two tablets of stone. But do you know in actuality, God spoke these things first to the people as they were gathered around Mount Sinai. 2.5 million people gathered around a mountain and God spoke these things. And it must have been a terrifying experience because later the people say, have not, let not God speak to us again lest we die. That's how earth shattering it was. So we join the nation of Israel gathered around Mount Sinai And they hear these words spoken. Verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It It is these two verses that required us to go back and look at the first 19 chapters to truly understand the purpose of the giving of the Ten Commandments. If we isolate these Ten Commandments in and of themselves and we just look at them individually, the significance is so important, but the impact of them is only enhanced when we understand them in the light of everything that God has done. And what God has done is that He delivered a people unto Himself that they may be His special treasure, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, the nation Israel. It is His special people. And now He is giving them the Ten Commandments that will teach them and show them how to interact with Him and how to interact with one another that they may be that treasured possession, that kingdom of priests, that holy nation. As one commentator wrote, he said, these latter terms are called the Ten Words from which we uh, derive the designation Decalogue or Ten Commandments. Their importance was further emphasized when they were eventually inscribed by God on two tablets of stone. He etched them Himself in the stones and gave them to Moses. He went on to write, The stipulations outlined by God were to govern Israel's relationship with Him. 
These represented the principal requirements which God placed upon the people of Israel for the establishment and the maintenance of the covenant relationship between them and Him. The people were to be single-minded in their devotion to the One who delivered them out of the land of Egypt. They were to worship Him and Him alone. Further, their social behavior was to follow a pattern which was placed, a, which was placed as a high a priority on the rights of the individual as regards to life, marriage, and possessions. They were to obey these commandments out of pure love for God. And in the statement, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, there are four things that we see about God. Number one, we see that God is above nature. He's superior to His own creation. Man continuously wants to bring God down to our level. It is nature that we are surrounded with and it is nature that we believe is all that exists. That there's nothing more than nature itself. But there is a supernatural, God is saying. There is something superior to the natural itself. And the natural itself is only a testimony of He Himself, the Creator of the creation. So, number one, God is above all nature. Number two, God is personal. God is personal, and there's a personal aspect to Him. I am your God. You are my people. This is what I have done for you. I have brought you out of the land of Egypt. But not only is God personal, someone we can know, someone we can interact with, but He is also good. Remembering the promises that He made. This is our third point of Him. Remembering the promises that He made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now fulfilling at this moment through the deliverance of His people. But the fourth one is one we cannot miss. And that is God is holy. God is holy. Let us never forget that as believers today that God is holy. And you and I must understand that holiness if we are going to approach Him properly as ones who claim to follow Him. I like what one commentator said. He said this, Before God commanded anything of Israel, He reminded them of what He had done for them. This was a clear foundation to all that God is because of who God is and what He has done for us. He has the right to tell us what to do and we have the obligation to obey Him. Notice, before He shares with them anything, before He tells them anything or requires anything from them, He first delivered them. That's exactly what Jesus Christ has done for you and I. He has delivered us from darkness. He has delivered us from death. He has delivered us from this world. And He has brought us out, set us apart. And then, because He has done such an incredible thing, that His grace has been displayed in such an incredible way, we now need to respond by being obedient to what God has asked us to be obedient to. I love what G. Campbell Morgan says when he says, God did not uh, promulgate a code of laws for the children of Israel while they were in bondage, telling them that they would need to obey it. He would rather deliver them He brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and then gave 
him or them his laws, meaning that he delivered them, he saved them, he brought them to him, and now he is saying, follow me and do so by doing what I have asked you to do. And that's the same principle for you and I who are Christians. Christ brought us out and now we are to serve him because he has saved us. So huge introduction to the first of the Ten Commandments, and that is found in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me, or you shall not place any other gods before my face, is what God is saying. Soul allegiance must be given unto the Lord. We know God as being monotheistic, meaning that there is one God. That is our practice as a Christian. We do not believe in a plethora of gods. We believe that there is one true God. And that was reiterated throughout the Old Testament and encapsulated in the prayer of the Jewish people in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Showing us that there is only one God. Now we understand Him as a triune being. That one is made up of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That'll get your mind going this morning. Hope you had your coffee. But that is clearly articulated in Scripture, that there is one God made up of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, there is undoubtedly no denying the fact that when the Ten Commandments were given verbally, audibly to the people of Israel gathered around Mount Sinai. It was definitely an impact that had taken place. Our study of the Ten Commandments must be done in such a way. We must study the impact of the Old Testament account, but we must apply it according to the New Testament requirements. How does the Ten Commandments work in our life as followers of Jesus Christ who has satisfied all the requirements of the law of God? So we see the impact. Now think of an impact as this. It doesn't matter if it's a meteor hitting the roof, the the meteor hitting the earth, or you throwing a stone into a lake. What occurs afterwards? Immediately after that impact, there is ripples that continue out. And if they are given the opportunity and if they have enough energy behind them, they'll continue forever. I believe that when God gave the Ten Commandments, the world was no longer the same. That's how, that's how the impact, how great the impact was. And as they rippled through society, knowing that the one true God requires these things of those who would follow Him, towards Him and towards others, it was a ripple that went all the way through. And you see that ripple continue through the New Testament. And so what we need to do to be good students of the Word of God is that we need to look at the impact and then we need to look to see how it moves through the New Testament. Does the New Testament support the Old Testament claim that there is one God? It absolutely does. Let me read a few verses for you. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God. I don't know how much clearer it can be than that. And there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given uh, at the proper time. James continued that thought, and he said this. 
You believe that God is one. Well, you do well. But no, even the demons believe and shudder that fact. I added that. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul writes again, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol is no real existence, has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, meaning that obviously we have representations of them, but they don't actually exist. As he goes on in verse 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom all things exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, whom are all things and through all things in whom we exist. So, The New Testament absolutely supports the fact that there is one God. Now here's the rub. Now here is where the world will come back when we say that there is only one true God. You want to stir up your your, uh, unbelieving family at Christmas and probably never get invited back. Why do I know this? I know this because I've done this. Okay? I've done this. But those same parents that rejected God. My mom just got saved recently. And the other day when I walked into my home on a Friday evening, I went to go see my parents. And I'm, you know, I go every so often. I want to interact with them. I want to, you know, share with them, you know, be a good son. Obviously, I know that when I go over there, I'm going to have things to do and fix, etc. But I walked in and what I saw shocked me so much that I walked back out looked at the address of the, the, the house to make sure I had the right one, walked back in because I walked in and they're both reading their Bibles. I said, where are my parents? You know, I didn't believe in alien abduction until that point. I, God has done such a work. But you know what? One of the seeds of that work is when I said there was only one true God and let them be angry about it for a little while. Let them wrestle with it. I am not going to apologize to the fact that there's only one true God because it's that one true God who came down and saved me and you. I'm not going to be embarrassed about it. But what about all the religions in the world? There must be a plethora of gods. Well, in actuality, that's a a faulty statement. First of all, understand that many of those uh, world religions believe in one God, and they direct their attention towards one God. And that's why many who have actually looked at the world religions around the world, not, not, and I'm not saying that there isn't a plethora of a, or a pluralistic idea of God, meaning that there are many pagan gods, you go to India, there's one on every corner, etc. But people have a tendency to gravitate towards one, and then worship that one, or if they are like the Athenians in the book of Acts, they worship all of them because they don't want to offend any of them. But the actuality here is that those who have studied world religions have come to the conclusion more than a plethora of gods, it's basically everyone trying to get to God through their own way. Now they have the wrong concept of God, they have the wrong idea of God, but when we get into this conversation, if we want to talk intelligently about it, let us really truly qualify what we are saying. Now, first of all, realize the impossibility of having an omnipotent multiplicity of gods. First of all, that's an impossibility. In fact, every culture that hosts a variety of gods, a plethora of gods, being the Greek 
um, gods of old on Mount Olympus, or even into our current culture, when you go to a nation like India and you see the plethora of gods that they have, they're all at different ranks. Do you ever notice that? They all have different abilities. One is subjected to the other, etc. Our God is saying that He is all-knowing, that He is all-powerful, that He knows everything, He can do anything. He's, uh, he's accountable to nobody. He's completely sovereign in His reign. So it is impossible to elevate another God alongside of one who claims to be almighty or all-powerful. It's an impossibility. But that being said, what do you do with the number of world religions? Well, then you have to engage in those conversations on the basis of what religion we're talking about. And then you have to identify the claims of that faith or that religion and begin to dismantle them one at a time. But here's the rub. If people say, well, I'm just going to settle... I'm just going to settle that it doesn't matter if it's uh, Allah, it doesn't matter if it's uh, Kali in India, it doesn't matter which God I'm going to embrace, let's just, let's just agree that we're all trying to get to God in our own way. Sorry, can't do it. And here's why. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But that's so narrow-minded. Yeah, yeah it is. And I'm not going to apologize for it because he was the only one that came down out of heaven, perfect man, perfect God, died in my place, was buried and rose again. Okay? So, and since he has done that for us, he can say that because he's backed it up. So, understand that when people hit you today with all of these world religions, understand that the complexity of those things starts to dissipate when you start asking some certain qualifying questions about what you are actually talking about. And then point them to Jesus. Show them that statement and let it just sit in their gut and just let it do its work. Because He will do the work. Number one, You shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Man is inherently desiring to worship. And man inherently wants to visualize what he or she is about to worship. And that is the reality of the creation of idols. Idolatry is an incredibly offensive sin before God. It's an abomination unto him simply because of what he has done for us. He shall have no other God before him. 
When I was on a panel of pastors, we were asked a question, what is the most offensive sin within the United States of America? And when it came to my turn, it was very easy for me to say idolatry. See, here in America, we don't believe that idolatry is a problem because you often don't walk into a person's house and see an idol there. And maybe some incense burning, etc. Which is a reality in nations around the world today in other cultures, but not here in America. And therefore, since we do not see an idol within our house, we don't think idolatry is a problem. Idolatry is a huge problem in the United States of America today. And it is a huge problem amongst Christians today. It is a huge problem amongst Christians today. But why do, not, why do Christians not recognize that fact? It's because they don't know what idolatry is. It is placing anything before God in our lives. And attaching to that thing our affection sacrificing to that thing. Well, I don't sacrifice to any idol. You don't? Sacrifice can be the laying down of anything that you have that is precious to you. Maybe you're thinking of sacrifice as simply an animal sacrifice of some sort or even a human sacrifice in some pagan cultures. But sacrifice is anything that is valuable to, to you that you lay down before that uh, idol that you have created. And let me give you an example of some of those things. The two most precious commodities in anyone's life is this, time and money. Time and money. Whatever you give time to, whatever you give money to, is where your heart is. Where your treasures are, that's where your heart will be also, Right? And so time and money. That's why D.L. Moody said, I know a Christian by the manner in which they use their time and how they give of their money. Why am I saying that? Because those are the two most precious commodities to a person. My time and my money. Think about how you spend those things. And then you will discover very quickly what the idol is in your life. I'm going to give you a hint. In fact, I'm going to just blow past the hint and give you the answer. The idol that so many worship today in the United States of America, including Christians themselves, is themselves. Me. It's all about me. Now think about that reality. Let that soak into your mind for a minute. Wrestle it out in your own heart because it is absolutely the opposite or antithesis of what God would have. Whenever man creates an idol, they always create it after man's image. How many of you have gone to see sci-fi movies? Maybe you love alien movies like I do. But do you know how many aliens look kind of like human beings? You know, we have, they have arms and fingers and heads and toes and ears sometimes and pointy ears other times, etc., but we always start with the base in which we have and we start to think that everything looks like us. And the same is true with idols. We take something out of God's creation and we stand it up before us just like they did with the golden calf, just like they did with other idols within their society. They mirrored something that was already there, either from creation itself or their own fallen imagination. Listen to what one writer said. Speaking later of Israel's experience in Sinai, Moses wrote... And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sounds of his word, but saw no form. You only heard a voice. And his conclusion was interesting. 
This established the principle that the worship of God was to be word-based and not image-based. I thought that was interesting. For idols were recorded by David as this in Psalm 135, 15. The idols of the nation are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have uh, mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not hear. They have ears, but they do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. And notice what God says about these idols in 20 verses 5 through 6. And you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations to those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. Our God is a jealous God. It is not that he is jealous or envious of anything that we uh, attach our affection to. But understand... He is jealous and zealous over us because of what He has done for us and because He loves us so deeply. Throughout the Old Testament, idolatry was equated with adultery, meaning that we were cheating on God with this idol. And God is not jealous of that idol. He's not envious of that idol. The idol is irrelevant. The idol doesn't exist. He's jealous and zealous over our own hearts that we would take our affection off of Him and place it on to anything else. To place it on anything else. When Paul addressed the uh, um, philosophers at Athens in, in Acts 17, he said this, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of that divine being as like gold or silver or stone, the image formed by the art or the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. And of this he has given us assurance to all by raising that man, him, from the dead, speaking of Christ. The days of idols are over. The person of Christ has been given to us. John said it this simply, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians ten fourteen, therefore my beloved, flee from idols. But I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. And here is my concern. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. We have a warning given to us that is so important for you and I to understand. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. I will begin reading for you. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, I'm sorry, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For in his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For also they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, but they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Notice what Paul is saying. 
that to allow these idols to resurface after the fact of the coming of Christ. Number one, the wrath of God is poised against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness. But notice these individuals that would once again resurrect idols. They resurrect idols due to the fact that they are suppressing the knowledge of God in unrighteousness. Though creation announces the glory of God from the heavens above to the earth beneath, and our conscience would tell us that God exists knowing right from wrong, and that moral code that is found in the Ten Commandments resonates within our hearts because we were created by the same God. However, though, to allow idolatry to flourish to the point that Paul uh, tells us it requires the suppression of the knowledge of God. Today in our culture, we, like the pagans of old, worship the exact same gods, but we don't understand and know this. In the time of the Jewish people, there was the god Baal, who was the god of wealth and financial success. There was the god Ashereth, who was the goddess of sex, romance and reproduction and another uh, other uh, local deities that uh, bid for the affections of the jewish people understand today we pursue the exact same thing who doesn't want to be wealthy and successful and famous who doesn't want to have pleasurable experiences through sexual interaction apart from what god would say these are the same gods being worshiped in the same way without the images in front of them I like what one wrote, and they don't know who it was. It might have even been John Calvin himself when he says, It has been said that the human nature is like an idle factory that operates consistently. We consistently deal with the temptation to set all kinds of things before and competing with God and he, um, and his uh, preeminent place within our lives. Warren Worsby went on to say, If an idol is anything that takes the place of God... Anything to which we devote our energy, time, and expense to, or for which we make sacrifices because we love it and serve it, then the warning of the Scriptures is valid for us today. The idols that entice God's people today are things like money, recognition, success, material possession, cars, houses, boats, collectibles, knowledge even, with some people, can be an idol. We shall not have any carved images before us. Now, what about pictures of Jesus? Well, first of all, realize that I don't think I've seen an accurate picture of Jesus ever. Why do I say that? It's because we don't know what Jesus looked like. Secondly, why do we believe that he is blonde hair and blue-eyed? We're convinced of that. And now it depends on what nation or culture that you are of. We have African-American Jesuses. We have all different kinds. And yet we want to depict him in that way. I think it's a very dangerous uh, place to go. And let me share something with you. I discovered that in my study of the Word of God, when idolatry was present in the people, it was always, always from the reality of the fact that the people were distanced from God. When they were close to God, there was no idols needed. But when they felt distant from God, idols were embraced. Images were embraced. Those images are a a, a pale comparison to having the nearness of God himself. If I'm near to God, I have no need for any type of idol. 
the third commandment, verse 7, if you look there with me. You shall not take the Lord your God's name in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is another one. Taking the Lord's name in vain has been defined and characterized in many different ways, but I believe that there are three ways that can clearly show that we have taken the 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 name of the Lord in vain. First is profanity. Using the name of God as a cuss word. Frolity, which is where we lessen or cheapen the name of God in some way. Or hypocrisy, when we look to validate a lie by swearing on God's name. Now, in the New Testament, we find that Jesus said very clearly, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be truthful, be honest. Don't use or swear an oath to validate what you are about to say because you should be known of a person of your word automatically. And Jesus told us in Matthew 6 that the beginning of the Our Our Father prayer is Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It should be reverenced. It should be honored. It should be glorified. The Jewish people didn't even want to say the name of God. They didn't even want to write the name of God because they reverenced it so highly. Now, this is what blows me away, especially by all of those who want to believe that there's a plurality of gods out there someplace and that all religions are valid. Do you ever notice that they never curse in the God's names of those religions? You know, I've never heard or seen anyone working construction, hitting their hand with a hammer and saying, Oh, Buddha! Never seen it. I've certainly never seen anyone say, Allah! You know. Or, can you imagine someone using uh, the name of one of these pagan gods to validate what they say? I swear to Kali that what I'm saying is true. What? See, it just doesn't carry the same weight, does it? But when someone is trying to substantiate something, they say, I swear to God. I swear on the Bible. Because somehow that authority validates what is about to be said, that that authority is greater. We need to reverence God's name. We need to keep it holy. We need to show our respect for it. As we do so, the world will respect it. If we don't respect the name of God, if we don't respect God in our lives, we cannot expect the world around us to respect God. The fourth commandment, found here in verse 8. This is the one commandment that is not reiterated in the New Testament for us to keep as believers in Jesus Christ. And let's read it together. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, uh, you shall not do any work, you or your sons, your daughters, your male servants or your female servants, or your livestock or sojourners who are with you within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, 
and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, this is one that I'm seeing that many Christians believe that some reason, for some reason, that we need to resurrect this again. They're called Sabbatarians. And maybe you've been challenged by someone when you tell them, I'm going to church on Sunday. Well, wait a minute. You're not keeping the Sabbath by going to church on Saturday. On Saturday. And so you come back and say, well, what's the deal? Well, the Jewish people took the last day of the week and their calendar went from uh, Sunday to Saturday and Saturday was the last day of the week and they worshiped God on the Sabbath and they suspended all work so they could take one day to consecrate themselves before the Lord. And it wasn't just for the people, it was for everything. Notice how God articulates that command. It's even for the stranger that's amongst them. It's for the animals that they have in their possession. And it was to emulate and to replicate the six days of creation and the one day of rest and ultimately pointing forward to Jesus Christ, the ultimate rest for you and I. But today, many Christians say, why don't we keep the Sabbath? Well, because the apostles didn't keep the Sabbath. In fact, When Jesus resurrected on a Sunday morning, the followers of Jesus, starting with the apostles, began to gather and worship on the first day of the week rather than the last day of the week. And they did so throughout the book of Acts. You can see it very clearly articulated there. And nowhere in the New Testament is that practice condemned. Or nowhere in the New Testament does it say that we must keep the Sabbath as believers in Jesus Christ For in actuality, Paul made it abundantly clear when he said this, Therefore would let no one pass judgment on you. This is Colossians 16 and 17. I'm sorry, Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regards to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadows of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So... We worship God on the first day of the week. Because in the new covenant, it's not just one day a week that we consecrate ourselves unto God. It is every day of the week that we consecrate our lives to God. And it is the first day of the week, Sunday, that we gather together to, rep- to recognize, to worship, and to learn, and to grow in our knowledge and the grace of God as we assemble for fellowship and for edification in the church. So those who are Sabbatarians, God bless you. But I do not feel that it is proper for you to say that it is unbiblical or sinful for us to meet on Saturday because the scriptures do not say that. Nowhere will you find the exhortation to meet on the Sabbath day as believers. Now for the Jewish people, Exodus 31 says it was a sign to them that they may always remember what God has done for them to establish them as his people and his nation. And you can read that for yourself in Exodus 31 verses 12 through 18. So the first four commandments showing us how we are to interact and to deal with God. Now remember, we have to take the Old Testament impact in conjunction with the New Testament application. And when Jesus was challenged by the religious leaders and their legal representation, many lawyers gathered to Jesus. 
They asked him several times, which of the commandments is the greatest? And he did not refer to any of the Ten Commandments. Twice we have recorded for us. He looked at another commandment. And then he he added and emphasized a second. And in so doing, he said that all of the Ten Commandments would be fulfilled. Now the Ten Commandments became the basis of the law, the Old Testament law. They were the ten pillars, and on these pillars was the foundation of the law that was given by Moses afterwards to articulate the application of those commandments. But for you and I as Christians, the law simply served as a schoolmaster leading us and educating us in the knowledge of our own sin. The law showed us that we were sinful before God, pushing us to Jesus showing that we cannot be saved in and of ourselves, that the law is incapable of saving anybody, and keeping the Ten Commandments is an impossibility. However, one has done so, and his name was Jesus. And he came that he may be a substitution for you and I. What we could not do for ourselves, he did for us. And if we will believe by faith, in him, understanding the grace of God that was demonstrated by the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we can be justified before God, made perfect, atoned for. And as we believe in Jesus, the Father looks at us with Christ as a filter between us. And though our sins were as scarlet before him, as God the Father looks through Christ, our sins have become as white as snow. So this is what Jesus told us to look to, to fulfill, to keep all of the Ten Commandments. And notice the progression again. It starts with God and then everyone else in both occasions. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40, but when the Pharisees heard that he uh, he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and and of the prophets. Mark reiterated this and took it one step further. In Mark 12, 28 through 31, And one of the scribes came to him and heard with them disputing with one another and seeing that he had answered them well, that is Jesus, and asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, said, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he went on to finish it. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the, and the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. God first, then our relationship with man. You're not going to have a right relationship with man until you have a right relationship with God. The Ten Commandments. We've started with the first four that teach us about God, and we saw the reiteration of these in the New Testament, the Old Testament impact, the New Testament implications and application. I love what D.A. Carson said about this. Very simply, he wrote, 
for a love for God must come first, but it can never be divorced from the love of one's neighbor. The former leads automatically to the latter. Now, I want to leave you with this this morning. If I could have everyone's attention, this is my concern going forward. Going forward. Wow, a lot to absorb today. Thanks for your time. A lot there. But going forward, we see our nation continuously reject the things of God. Removing God from every public institution, there is almost in a manner so systematic that it would look like suppression of a knowledge that is within them in unrighteousness. But our world is still crying out for a moral code to guide our citizens, to guide people by. But see, the moral code, apart from God, is then uh, divorced from uh, absolutes. And the moral code that is apart from God is divorced from any type of accountability for that moral code. So Ted Turner was right. It must be an initiative that we promise to keep in and of ourselves, but we allow that initiative to be voluntary. Voluntary. So it's optional. What scares me today, and I want you to truly consider this as you leave this morning, what scares me today is that there is no longer a moral uh, consensus in our nation any longer. In our removal of God from all public places, we have removed the context in which all morality would be kept or held. So as we are experiencing today, we are experiencing this, and I think I have read this somewhere, correct me if I'm wrong, that everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And we're calling bad good and good bad today. And we're seeing because there's no longer a contextualization for morals, meaning that it's, it's an open playing field. It, it's whatever the person wants and whatever that person desires. There are no more boundaries anymore. Did you notice that? And those boundaries would have the big word sacred on them. There's nothing sacred anymore. Everything is open for redefinition. Everything is open to be revisited. And what happens as we, people are now in a quandary because we are actually asking a person to be self-governed by a fallen sinful nature. Did you ever think about that? You're probably like, Eric, get a hobby. You think too much. I can't help but think these things. You you watch the news and every single day things are changing. One day something is bad, the next day it's okay. And things that were reprehensible 10 years ago are completely acceptable today. Where is it all going? When does it all end? When does the world step in and say, no, that's not right? How can they anymore? Because they've released the playing field. That's my fear. Every time I see the Ten Commandments being rolled away, covered, I can't help but think, Lord, how much grace did you offer us? How much more, Lord? We've told you that we did not want you. 
I love that cartoon that was shown about five, six years ago. Maybe you remember it. When people were grieving over what's happening in our public school systems with the number of violent occurrences. And somebody wrote, the reason for this violence is that everything is accepted and all that's being expelled is God himself. So why be mad at God when you don't want God to be anything part of it? Think about that. We stated just 10 years ago that with the high influence of evolution on our society, why are, we, why are we shocked that people act like animals? We told them nothing matters. We told them that there's nothing more than what's here today. And the more they strive for here today, the more they pursue happiness here today apart from God the farther it flees from them in every case. I don't know about you, but standing before the Ten Commandments this morning, I think requires a moment of pause and reflection. 